Welcome to the Witches and Wine audio experience. Everybody, Chowan here, and we're gonna talk about crystals. Guest, what is your name? Nicholas Pearson. Who are you? I'm an occultist, a witch, a crystal healer, and a mineral science buff. What is the problem that you're trying to solve? There's a lot of terrible information about rocks out there, and I, I want to help conquer that and teach people to think for themselves. Why should we even listen to you? What's your expertise? I have been doing this for almost 30 years. I've been a mineral collector since like early childhood. I've got a background in mineral science, so largely self-taught. I worked in the science field for a while, and now I work with the general public and the metaphysical field, and I've got a ton of books published to my name about my experience. So I'm, I'm here to help teach. I see, right behind you, some books. Are those your books? They are. I've got this guy over here and then all these on this side. So far, uh, six books on shelves. But what I see right there is Crystal Basics. So let's start with that one. So the idea is to look at the relationship between things like mineral formation, the crystal structure, the chemistry of things, and how that kind of gives us a, a level of understanding for the therapeutic mechanisms at play when we work with crystals and their energy. Uh, the, the study of rocks and minerals is absolutely nothing new, but trying to find that level where science and spirit collide, that is the thing that I love most. Uh-huh, and it says crystal basic, so I'm guessing this is beginner friendly? Very. Um, a, a lot meatier, we'll say, than your average beginner book on crystals. It's got an A to Z guide in there, 200 stones, but um, the thing that I am really proud of in this is the how-to part. It goes through theory and practice. About 50% of the book is all hands-on and um, really helps people understand the geology behind it and also why that matters, whether that's happening at a metaphorical or symbolic level or where we're looking at it as a sort of pathway for the electromagnetic properties of crystals. However we want to approach it, I do believe that if we understand one aspect of the mineral kingdom, we also can enrich our practice in the spiritual side of it too. I would like you to meet Bob. So Hello, Bob. Bob is a, well, so far, I think the name for Bob would be a rock crystal or optical, optical quartz. So, okay, first of all, people are talking shit about Bob on TikTok. It's very upsetting to me. And they're saying that the way Bob is cut is not makes Bob not a real crystal? Is that a thing? Like people can just look at a crystal on TikTok and they can just tell if it's fake or not? Or is it something that you actually have to hold and you really don't know unless you like look at it under a microscope? 
It really depends on the material we're talking about. I can tell you just from seeing on the camera, this is absolutely a piece of real quartz. It has been sort of lightly polished. The edges have been softened, but the way light passes through it is very characteristic of quartz. Little tiny wisps and veils that you see at the bottom are also indicative. This is a piece of natural quartz. And I think anyone else trying to say otherwise is fooled by the fact that it has been lightly polished. Um, you know, my the, the trained eye of someone who studies mineral science is very different than the trained eye of someone who watches 15 second long videos on TikTok. Uh, just just going to put that out there. I'm not saying it isn't a great platform, but the, the, this is something that people go to school for ever to learn. And we just have to dig deeper. We have to look beyond the surface level. Bob, do you hear that? There's somebody who's an expert finally validating you. You're not a resin. You're real. You're real. Even as a skeptic, when I hold Bob in my hand, even though Bob isn't exactly physically oscillating, there is a feeling of some sort of energy, sort of like when you hold like a battery that's been newly charged in your hand. Even though the battery is not electrocuting you, you can definitely feel that there's something alive about it. Yeah, totally. And, and you know, to that point, what isn't oscillating? Everything, if we look at the small enough bits, are in this dance of ecstatic motion. So if we look at something like Bob, who is a piece of alpha silicon dioxide, clear quartz, um, the, the way his molecules are arranged, the way those ions come together to form that silicon dioxide, those little tetrahedral bases, means that Bob oscillates to exactly the same frequency and amplitude that all all quartz of similar type does. So Bob is highly ordered. Crystals by their nature are ordered. They're coherent. They are synchronized or harmonious. So the, the, you don't have to be extremely sensitive on that sort of intuitive or um, vibrational level to sort of detect that there's something special about something that exhibits so much order. And I, I think that is in part why we feel their energies so readily, so clearly. Um, I mean, I think there are a whole lot of other reasons why, but certainly there's something remarkable. It's something that is exhibiting such perfection inside and out. What do you mean when you say that Bob is ordered? So um, Bob is made out of these tiny little molecules. They're always in the same proportions, always happening in the same ratios, and barring a few little uh, inconsistencies because nature is perfectly imperfect. Um, all of the alpha silicon dioxide that's inside Bob and any other piece of quartz are arranging themselves in exactly the same order, this exactly the same shape. Every angle internally is the same and that's why you can you can pick up any two pieces of quartz, again barring some some sort of um, anomalies that are going to happen, you know, subject to its environment, um, the, the measurement of the angles between faces is going to be similar. If we take a, a thin section and watch the way that uh, it plays with light, the natural order arrangement of, of its sort of molecular nature is going to impact everything around it in the same way. Um, quartz isn't just something that is naturally ordered because of its crystallinity. I mean, all, all things that are crystalline by their very nature are are just that highly ordered pieces of usually solid substance. They have a homogeneous um, composition and a regular repeating and symmetrical structure. That's, that's the nature of crystallinity. So please correct me if I misunderstood, but I think what you're saying is that on a molecular level, if you looked at Bob's composition, like it might look like, I don't know, like super symmetrical, it may look like super ordered, you know, 
like it looks like a almost like a factory line in a way like it's like super do 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 like something like that is that what you're saying totally um and 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 although things for the most part are going to be perfect you know mother nature has those happy little accidents that that make things unique um that's why we can pick up two pieces of quartz from two different mines two different parts of the world and there are going to be some superficial dis differences we'll see with the naked eye but there can be little tiny imperfections uh, at the molecular level as well and that's part of what also gives crystals their opportunity to do what they do um, i'm a big fan of trying to find the well at least say a, a metaphoric level of understanding the the way crystals work by looking at how they behave with energies we can measure. You know, how do they interact with light and other forms of electromagnetism? And I, I often think that that is a really good metaphor for how we'll understand subtle energy because there's no way to measure that by its very nature, it's too subtle. So although all of these crystals are, are on one hand perfect, they also have these little tiny inconsistencies that give them some of their magic. I can honestly say like when I held the crystal, I was like, this crystal feels like a bob. And I wasn't being facetious <laughs> or anything. Like I held the crystal and this crystal, even though, you know, it's a clear quartz and people may see it as, ooh, pretty and shiny. This quartz felt like very plain spoken. You know, there was something sort of like unassuming about it. And it felt like a bob. Is it just me like being creative and poetic and just projecting, anthropomorphizing these crystals? Is that what it is? You know, we can't rule that out. Let, let's face it, perception is reality. So how we perceive things is definitely going to have a big part of our experience of the world around us. But I think there's that fine line between um, projecting our own stuff and perceiving what is absolute. So it's about honing your filter. Um, and that's that's true for any area of occultism, psychic development, witchcraft. We've got to hone our bullshit meters. Otherwise, we're going to dilute ourselves. There's a lot of that going around on the market right now, especially around things like Moldavite, um, which is great rock, but like there are tens of thousands of other great rocks too. So um, yeah, I, th I think anthropomorphization is a, a big part of it, but I also think that crystals are natural reflectors. If we look at the way they interact with light, you know, part of the electromagnetic spectrum, a type of energy, they reflect, they refract, they change the focus of things. Um, they, they cohere energy or light that passes through them. So yeah, they're going to reflect some of our own stuff to that. And maybe that's part of what we're experiencing is that anthropomorphizing of the stone. But I also think as an animist that there's an inherent seed spark of consciousness in everything. And it just makes sense to me that a, a piece of matter that is this highly ordered, structured, regular, coherent, it's going to have a consciousness that is highly ordered, regular, structured, and coherent. And that kind of consciousness speaks loud and clear if we know how to listen. How did you develop your bullshit meter? Um, well, for starters, I believed all the bullshit. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I, I was an impressionable teenager reading every book I could get my hands on. And every, I mean, if, if people in the woo-woo world make strange claims, I think the people who make claims about crystals are probably only, only surpassed by the UFO claims that are out there. And sometimes they're blended together. You'll find books that talk about them interchangeably. Um, so, you know, there's the first thing that caught me was how can, how can I trust the level of um, metaphysical claims being made when I can't trust the level of geological chemical, you know, 
uh, other forms of like measurable information. So I started to look at how how well studied someone was. And, and I think that when we're talking about these sort of subjective spiritual experiences, what we call unverified personal gnosis, I mean, it's just that it's unverifiable. Um, but if someone partners that with some really bad science, I'm less likely to believe the source. Um, but if I, can, if I can look for that sort of meta level that connects things above and beyond the, the facts of this channeled information versus this totally bullshitted made up information or, or whatever it's gonna be, um, it gives me the opportunity to maybe look for like, what is the kernel that inspired this? What was the experience that inspired it? And I started to do this by um, reading voraciously and I, I started to notice there's a trend here. Um, you know, this author, this author, and this author, they lived in different time periods. They didn't read one another's works. They didn't speak the same language, um, but yet they all describe this, this group of minerals similarly, even though they don't know they're related because let's face it, metaphysical people are generally not mineral science people. So I started to see trends. Oh, people tend to say these sorts of things about minerals that contain iron and these sorts of things about minerals that contain zinc and these sorts of things about um, minerals in the cubic crystal system. And, and so I, I sat down and had my own kind of tangible experiences. I tried things out. I carried them with with me through the day, I worked with clients and students and friends and colleagues to see what sort of effects we could we, we could at least qualify. If you can't quantify, I mean, data is data. It can be qualitative and it's still something to work with. What experience did you have with this stone versus that can stone? Can you give me an example? Yeah. So um, let's take a look at something like manganese. I love manganese minerals. One of my favorites is actually rhodonite, which is like around my neck at all times. And I've got bunches of it nearby. Um, manganese minerals have a really strong affinity for the heart center. And you know, a lot of woo-woo people stop at the fact that a lot of manganese minerals tend to be red or pink, like we associate with love and romance and other dribble. So, um, but if, if we look at the therapeutic role that a lot of these manganese minerals have is that they, they deal with themes of like vulnerability, strength, um, our ability to sort of lean into the discomfort of life. And depending on what that manganese is paired with, you're gonna have different kind of therapeutic mechanisms at play. But if, if you read a lot of stuff about rhodonite, it's, people describe it as grounding, as um, a good stone for self-love, as a stone that maybe helps you have a sense of emotional fortitude. And while all of these might kind of describe the fringe, if, if we really look, it's a manganese silicate. So all silicate minerals have this propensity for bringing stability, order, structure, and we end up with a mineral that allows us to sort of face the discomfort of life, settle or calm the em how? emotional. But, but how, like I'm listening to this and I'm just like, how would somebody be able, let's say, okay, I'm yeah. not saying that everybody who holds like that stone or that mineral will feel like, oh my God, my anxiety is gone. But how does that silica do that? Like, is it because the silica like, like passes through our palms and it goes into our bloodstream? Like what, what happens? All right, so let's talk about, about the, the model I use that uses um, electromagnetism as, as the pathway. Uh, we have to understand that we're dealing a lot with subtle energy, so of course, we, we can't measure that by its nature, it's subtle, but we can talk about things that uh, crystals do that are measurable. Um, so if we bring two electromagnetic fields um, in contact with one another, if they have any, any semblance of sympathy of that harmonic resonance, um, there are two measurements for those energies that we, we tend to focus on the most. 
frequency and amplitude. Uh, to use the analogy of a radio, frequency is like the station you tune it to, amplitude is like the volume. So we've got these two energy fields. One of them has a higher amplitude than the other. It will entrain the lower amplitude field and they will eventually synchronize. This is, this is just okay. what these things do. So um, highly ordered systems naturally have a higher amplitude. So if I'm bringing something that is crystalline into my own electromagnetic field, I am not coherent. I mean, I, I try to be on a mental level, socially, I, I do my best, but like from an electromagnetic scale, like the makeup of my liver is different than that of my kidneys and my lung and my trachea, and they're all doing different things to keep me alive. So therefore the, the, the types of rhythms and pulses and activities, let alone their, their, their makeup is going to necessitate they generate slightly different electromagnetic fields. So the net sum of me is constantly changing and that's, that's the nature of life. But not all of those changes are necessarily supporting the, the mission I'm on, the, the state I wanna be in, the consciousness I'm trying to maintain. So by introducing a highly ordered substance that generates this highly ordered electromagnetic field that naturally has a higher amplitude than mine, um, it's going to entrain me to be just a little bit more, we'll say crystalline, in a metaphysical sense, you know, my body is not becoming physically more crystalline, but you know, energetically, my electromagnetic field begins to mimic that of the crystal. Now, what we do know, I mean, I mean, people have studied with super quantum interference, superconducting quantum interference devices, squids. Um, when we can make the electromagnetic field more coherent, and there are lots of ways to do this. Doesn't have to be rocks, but can do it with uh, breath and meditation, and visualization, and prayer and ritual. Uh, but when we make the field more coherent, particularly heart-brain coherence, um, we change our mood and our perception, which triggers a whole domino of, of uh, changes in our um, electrical transmitters, our chemical transmitters. And we get to this state where that, that spiritual experience or maybe the energy that is subtle is transcending our pathology. Um, and there are lots of peer-reviewed studies that are looking at um, complementary, alternative, and integrative medicine that are, that are following this exact kind of model to try to explain what's happening. The truth is it's subtle, we don't really know, but, but that appears to be a really good, at least metaphor for how it's working. So that's, that's one way I view crystals as working. Um, but again, I still believe in a component we can't measure. So even if we're just talking electromagnetism, I don't think that's the whole thing. Since the dawn of time, People have been collecting rocks, wearing rocks, using rocks to create art, um, living in, in shelters made from, adorned with, um, uh, built with rocks. Uh, we've had this relationship with the mineral kingdom since we've been here. I mean, it's been here longer than us. If something has a life force, a consciousness, a spirit to it, it's that. I mean, I was just reading, um, I'm just rereading the, the work of Hildegard von Bingen, a 12th century mystic. And in her Physica, she discusses the sort of therapeutic mechanisms at, at play um, in gemstones, because those are the only rocks she was really interested in. And she describes all gemstones as having fire and moisture within them. And we're not talking literal flame and water. We're talking about some sort of subtle force. And that was the metaphor she used. So people have been attempting to find this metaphor of that, that energetic quality, that, that mystical experience for eons. I, th I think there's gotta be something in there. We can call it a consciousness, a soul, a spirit. We can call it fire and moisture. We can call it vibrations or oscillation. But you know, at the end of the day, there's something to this. And that's why we keep coming back to it on a global cultural level. So I definitely do know that 
when it comes to things like astrological talismans. Of course, stones, yeah. gemstones, any sorts of minerals, um, they were used by all sorts of cultures to capture astrological energy. So that's, I mean, that's a historical fact. The yeah, Egyptians, totally. I know, um, a lot of even, not even like the sparkly crystal stuff, but they actually made statues made out of minerals. Um, and they would face certain directions towards certain stars. So when the star beam would hit the, the statue, it would collect that energy. So how did you, like, what was, literally, I'm thinking if you, you we're talking like your training regimen to develop yeah. what you consider to be a good bullshit meter. So how does a young witch start developing that according to how you did it? Just experiment, be willing to fail. Like, how do you know you've cast an effective circle? How do you know that um, the, the candle that you burnt is really giving you the end result and it isn't just a coincidence? You have to do it over and over and over again until you can tell the difference between things just happening and magic maybe guiding them in the direction you wanted them to happen. And so, you know, for me, it was like, hey, I'm going to try carrying this stone for attracting abundance because that's what everyone says it does. Wrong. This didn't work for me. So what is the deeper mechanism at play? And I start to think and I start to look for those patterns. So, um, you know, part of it is that sort of meta-analysis of all the literature. Part of it is like being willing to get my hands dirty and like, do the meditation, do the layout, carry it with me, use it as a talisman, um, work with them therapeutically, work with them in groups, do all of this stuff. I've been teaching workshops on crystals for 18 years now. Um, I, I have been working with the public, coaching people with rocks for a good amount of time. So um, I, I have seen things work and things not work. And almost invariably, um, one of the most important parts of the equation is human consciousness. So we can call that the placebo effect. It's still an effect. I, I can't say it's not the placebo effect. Uh, you know, the scientist in me has to say, I can't say that it's not. I totally own that. Um, but when you take it away at the end of the day, it's still working. And I still believe that there is something measurable that crystals are doing. And I think there's something that we can't measure with science yet that crystals are doing. And if, and if all these things are kind of pointing in the same direction, I mean, Occam's razor tells me the simplest answer has to be true. So. Am I bullshitting myself into believing that the evidence in front of me is, is real? Or could it be as simple as the stuff worked because it works? There is some sort of grounded logic as to why you feel as though crystals work. You can't prove it. But, and again, I will also say that that logic also seems to hold up for me. Like I can see why you would make that logical connection. Um, but that also, what you had to do was you had to first study a shit ton of stuff. And we're talking like, you, you mentioned like the hundreds of books that you've read over the years. You've been also working with crystals for more than just six months. You've been doing it for years, not even five years or 10 years. We're talking 20 years of actually working with the crystals. And so firsthand experience is probably like the biggest thing, right? It's you can read about it and read about it, but when you actually work with it for years and years and years and you teach it, you see patterns. You see that, hey, 80% of the students that I've had over the past seven years, they seem to have this effect with this crystal or this mineral. And so you can draw some sort of, I guess, because your data set, the, the, time of, the time spent working with crystals is so vast, your foundational knowledge is so deep. 
and your actual firsthand experience is also so deep. And it's not just you, it's also that you're teaching. So you're also seeing how other people are reacting. Your data set is actually probably more complete than let's say just some random person on TikTok who just bought one Moldavite and was like, oh, this is cute now, like I'm a crystal expert. And so that's where you're coming from. I've had the luxury of studying with some people that I really love. I've had mentors I corresponded with in my youth. And, you know, I, I worked in the science field, so I, I taught myself science um, to, to have a better understanding of at least what rocks are. Um, that's one thing I'd love to see more crystal people care about. How important like, is that? How important is it for a crystal enthusiast to learn about the science? Um, well, I mean, if you walk into a crystal store and you want to know that what you're getting is legit, instead of asking a million questions that could be perceived as really condescending or rude by the shopkeeper, and I know most people asking them are coming from a genuine space, but like you don't know what you don't know. So before you go, is this even real? Like learn about like how light moves through quartz, like hold enough of them that, that you can tell definitively learn why the angles are the way they are, understand what actually causes the, the coloration of, of crystals. You know, if you look at something like Bob, he, he lacks any color centers. Pure quartz in its natural state without any aberrations is gonna be colorless. Um, but you know, if we have a tiny bit of alumina that substitutes for the silica, and then it's exposed to some natural radiation in the earth, the bonds holding the alumina in break, we get these little voids in there, photons come in, and they have to essentially those little packets of light energy used to keep the crystal lattice stable. So it absorbs light without reflecting it. And that's how we get smoky quartz. A little bit of iron bends things in a different direction and, and we see violet and that gives us amethyst. So um, is, it, is it really important to understand that you know, X crystal is gonna help you with Y condition? Not, not at the beginning. But as you begin to learn the science behind it, one, you're going to be a more educated buyer. Um, you're not going to fall for things like uh, Azezchulite and Terraluminite and um, all these other made up marketing names. You're going to hold something and go, wow, this is like grade D quality quartz. And they're charging like $5 a gram. I could go pick this off the side of the road and it's the same material. Why, why is this worth $5 a gram? Um, it's because someone gave it a name. That's the only reason. Objectively, the only thing different about it is that it has been rebranded. It is the same material. So I think it's great to be educated. Um, there, there are so many ways that it comes in. Uh, knowing the difference between a stone that's been heat treated and not heat treated, knowing whether or not this material you just bought is beautifully colored glass or a gem quality opal. You know, how many people go into a crystal store, fall in love with this stuff called opalite, thinking it's actual opal. I mean, opal's in the name, right? So it's gotta be one, except it's the same stuff your windshield is made from. It's not opal. <laughs> so um, sure, it's got some coloring agents in there. It's got a really fun um, optical effect called Rayleigh scattering that makes it appear blue, even though there's no blue pigment in it. There's, there's lots of stuff about it that could be interesting, but I mean, it's gonna have the same metaphysical qualities as the glass in your windshield. Um, not not a precious opal. So I, I do think we should all aspire to learn at least a little bit of science. And in my job, when I'm out facing the public, either, you know, not, not during pandemic teaching classes, but when I'm doing it in digital format like this, or I work in a metaphysical store, I actually manage a really high volume, high traffic store in central Florida where I live. 
And, uh, you know, I, I use as much science until I see eyes glaze over. And then we talk about nicer things, but everyone gets at least a little bit of silence, science. And, and sometimes that's just by saying, well, this is an iron sulfide mineral. And then that's it. We've, we've hit their science threshold. <laughs> but I planted a seed. Why? Why is it that people are, is it purely just power of suggestion? They saw the TikTok and they just got influence, but somebody had to start it, right? Like there was somebody that patient zero who decided yeah. that Moldavite is what caused them to have trauma in their, the trauma to arise in their life. I think with the rise of like the, the aesthetics that we see on the internet, we get more invested in the aesthetics of our rocks. So that's why I see, I think in part, an in, in increase in treated things, things that have been dyed, things that have been electroplated. Um, used to be like the aura crystals, aqua aura, angel aura, all this stuff were made by a single lab in the Pacific Northwest. It was a very um, controlled process. They, they, they call the process um, uh, precious metal anodization or vapor deposition of precious metals. And it's a super cool alchemical sounding kind of thing. Um, and then they moved on to electroplating them. Um, other labs got the, got, got, got the ability to do the, the fancy stuff and then they started watering it down. And now even a step down from the electroplated stuff, we have things that are dyed first and then coated in Teflon. And they look superficially like these aura crystals, except they come in neon colors. Um, there are lots of other telltale signs, but like we're so obsessed with a thing that is shiny and pretty and beautiful that we're not really paying attention to like what is really going on here. So, and it's the same with the rebranding of old rocks with new names. It sounds sexier. It sounds more mystical. If we call this intrusive igneous rock called Gabbro mystic merlinite, I mean, how witchy is that, right? Okay. And I love Gabbro. I love rocks. I mean, geology nerd here how could i not but but changing the name from gabbro to mystic merlinite increases the market value because people suddenly care about a rock that like you might use for countertops otherwise and that's about it um so this this mystic merlinite phenomenon i is still made out of minerals i mean all rocks have constituent minerals within them I still think that the same rules apply, but it's just a matter of like the market didn't care until someone rebranded it. And unless you can start to think critically, you are going to fall prey to the power of suggestion. Um, this whole Merlinite thing um, started out like, it's like the fourth or fifth rock to get the name Merlinite because they keep running out of the previous ones or they're just not sexy enough anymore. So they keep rebranding something else to keep the, the train going. Some of them have similar compositions. There are a few like threads that are common throughout them and some of them are totally unrelated, but, but people treat them as if they're the same because they don't understand one, the history of the market and two, like what's really at play in this rock. So I think with Moldavite, I think Moldavite is incredible. If you're really doing the work, if you've laid the foundation, um, it, it's, it has the potential to do great things. I think all gemstones are natural catalysts. A catalyst is something that lessens the amount of energy or effort required to produce an outcome. So, you know, like enzymes in our body are catalysts for the digestive process or other things. Um, you use, um, you know, superconductors and other things as catalysts inside our electronics. Spiritually speaking, a catalyst is something that allows us to essentially do less effort to achieve a similar outcome or to sustain a state of consciousness with, with less outcome or less effort. But the deal is you still have to do the work. Like crystals are not a substitute for the work. A catalyst does not do the work for you. 
um, you, you could get big muscles just using natural resistance and, and your own body and do a million push-ups, or you could get fancy equipment at the gym and that's gonna help you do it easier. But owning the equipment doesn't mean you get the muscles. Right. You have to use it. You have to use it intentionally. You have to use it the right way. You have to use it intelligently. And it's the same kind of way with crystals. Like we can't buy a Moldavite, stick it in our pocket or wear it in jewelry, go about life as if it's just gonna fix itself. That is absolutely not what's gonna happen. If you are sensitive enough, let's say that there's no power of suggestion at play and it's, it's just, just energy. Let, let's say you are sensitive enough. It's like being tasked with running a marathon before you've learned how to crawl. If, if you don't know anything about like grounding, centering, meditation, um, psychic shielding, good spiritual hygiene, then like start with those things first, then introduce crystals and then introduce those like high octane crystals that are gonna like smack you in the face. I'm going to assume Bob is more of a beginner friendly crystal, or maybe Bob is a high octane crystal. I think that um, the sort of peculiar nature of quartz and the ubiquity of it means that people downplay. But I mean, there was a time when every crystal book there was, was basically dedicated to quartz because it was believed to be far superior than anything else. And then like the whole gemstone thing was a, a separate field and people generally did one or the other. Now crystals and gems are used wholeheartedly together. But I think quartz is accessible. So it's something that we can use at the beginner level, but because of the, I'll say integrity of its energy, the sort of clarity, the focus, the coherency, the order of it, um, and then the raw potential. I mean, quartz does a million and one weird things physically, chemically, structurally, mechanically. Um, it can do so much for us spiritually as well. So sure, it's beginner friendly, but it's one you can really grow with as well if you're devoted, if you're diligent. I mean, it's like learning the LBRP. You, you learn it by rote and that's it, but, but there are levels to it. There are levels to quartz. Bob had a certain energy, had a Bob energy. I was like, you are Bob, right? I named my crystal. And because I had spoken to Kathleen before, uh, she had basically said that instead of expecting it to do all the heavy lifting for you, because that's, that's just really disrespectful. You know what I mean? That's, that's like very much like you're using somebody and using any object, especially if you're an animist is just not a cool vibe. And instead basically having a relationship with Bob, where maybe he's my inspiration, where I look at Bob and I'm like, Bob operates on deep geological time. So I've stopped at the point where it's like, Bob and any sort of crystal is an inspiration to me merely as a symbol of deep ge geological time. And therefore, when I gaze at Bob and I hold Bob, it's almost like a memento mori. It's like a way to remind myself that I don't need to take everything so seriously because Bob has been around for millions, trillions of years, and I'm only going to be a drop in the hat, right? Something like that. But the thing is, is that let's say that I wanted to work with Bob in a more metaphysical way what would be the next step that you would suggest that's not too crazy like not too woo woo out there yeah so uh, my favorite thing to have beginners do and you've probably done this already without giving it a name i just call it a crystal contemplation if you've got natural light and a quiet space go there otherwise use what you've got marvel over your rock like what happens when you turn it this way and that? How does light pass through it? What is the texture of it in your fingers? 
use all the senses that it is safe to. Please don't lick your rocks um, unless you are absolutely certain it's not going to hurt you. And then even then, probably don't. Um, you know, if you have a piece of like rough ore like this, sometimes they have a scent. Like, what is that? What is the heft of it? What what is the sort of relative experience of this this sensory object? And on one level, it's to kind of help you step away from those preconceived um, ideas that come from the metaphysical woo-woo kind of world and just to enter into relationship with the stone. What is this stone? And what does this stone do for me when I hold it, when I connect with it? I, I think on the one hand, your conscious mind being so engaged allows your subconscious mind to do whatever the subconscious mind does. I'm, I'm not that expert. My experience has been though, if I spend enough time contemplating a crystal in this way, I start to recognize the crystal's energy better. So I'm particularly attuned to the mineral kingdom. So that's, that's, that's my shtick in life. I get that. But I think anyone, you know, if I'm taking this piece of iron ore, this specular hematite out in sunlight and I'm getting to see the way it catches the light, um, the way it, it either all lights up or it doesn't, we call that preferential orientation. All the crystal faces are facing the same direction. Um, you know, there's, there's something to that that is really marvelous. Even if there's nothing like mystical or metaphysical or magical in, a, in, in, in the occult sense, there's still something pretty darn mystical, magical, metaphysical about it in, in the grander kind of sense. Um, so just spend time with your rocks and then start to notice what arises when you do that. You start to recognize a lot of that's your own shit anyway. It's not really coming from the rock, but if they're natural reflectors, it's like looking into a mirror, something, something that's there, it might become more visible. I'm gonna assume that you have definitely held and contemplated an optical quartz like this before. You could say that, yeah. Yeah, so just so that people kind of can see the difference between myself as a beginner who knows like shit about minerals and somebody who is experienced like you and how we view things and perceive the energy might be different so okay let me tell you what i oh there we go i got one too oh okay oh look at that look at that pretty. okay that's very pretty the way it's cut is very pretty I've held it up to, like there's a window right here. I've held it up to the window because it's pretty. It's nice to see how the light shines through. I've held it. I've felt the weight of it. Um, I felt like how it can get warm in my hand. That was pretty cool. Um, the way that I perceive the energy. Now, this is the part I think that's most interesting, right? In terms of how we're going to compare. So far, it's very, very subtle. And I don't know if it's simply because I'm imagining things. I'm holding on to this and it feels like a living thing. It feels a little bit like static electricity or it feels just a little like that, right? It feels a little bit of like that. But then I think, well, maybe I'm starting to develop carpal tunnel syndrome or something like that, right? I don't know where that's coming from. And also because I read the literature, the instruction manual that came with this, and it said that this has a lot of energy to it. It promised me a lot of things, so maybe that influenced me as well. So I tend to just dismiss any sort of buzzy energy that I feel. I can tell this is a Bob. I've given Bob its name. That name just arose very spontaneously. I didn't think about it, it just came. I said, you are Bob. I literally said out loud, you are Bob. But at the same time, the energy that I feel, I can't, okay, like if I held, 
this is a, a portable battery, right? right? This feels a little bit different, not just because it's a different size and stuff, but just this doesn't seem to feel as buzzy, if that's the right word, than this. But then again, I may just be imagining this. So that's where I'm at right now as a total beginner. So how would you describe your contemplation with the quartz? All right, so you know, let's say this is the one that I'm sitting down with. Um, I, I'm, I'm going to assume I have really awesome light and I can watch it do its whole prismatic thing. I mean, I've got overhead fluorescence now, so we're just gonna use our imaginations. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm gonna say that my, my first experience is probably just gonna be totally like that very, very left brain. I'm gonna be a scientist. I wanna like see how the angles come together. I mean, this is a, a twinned piece of, of quartz. The fact that it, those, those faces are almost perfect mirrors. You know, we can't, we can't expect mother nature to be absolutely perfect every time. Um, I'm, I'm gonna like get lost in how this is even possible. Like, how do we exist on an earth where something can be this perfect and then like look at the life of the average human being? I'm, we're not that well put together. Um, so, you know, I'm going to kind of work from that level. And from there, as I'm marveling over this gorgeous object, this strange piece of mother nature, then maybe my brain makes space for those subtle impressions to come through. This, this late in the game, what I'm looking for without trying to project anything is what does it you know, what, what tactile sensations, if, if I could give that energy uh, a name, a flavor, a scent, a color, a sensation, you know, attach whatever sensory language works for you. I know some people are super visual, so, you know, they might translate that, that subtle vibe into something visual. Someone might be more, you know, uh, we'll say wordy, and they might want to just process it through a, a more verbal counter route and just describe it as uh, sensations, other things, but, you know, just pay attention to what arises. Um, maybe it's totally inside. Maybe it's not a sensation you get from it being in the palm of your hand. Um, and, and just observe. No expectation. Don't push it. Don't move it. Don't manipulate it. Just observe. And I think an important thing to do when I sit with a rock I don't know anything about is to do this over and over and over again, and watch what changes and watch what stays the same. Because a lot of that stuff I'm observing is just me. But somewhere in there, there's a common thread. Oh, this came up the first time I held it. I felt this experience inside. I had this memory. I had this sensation in my body. In my mind's eye, I saw this color pattern shape, whatever it's gonna be. Um, whatever your, your symbol set is, that's gonna have meaning to you on a personal level. But then like, look beyond just, the, the linear progression of this time, that time, and then third time you did it. Look for like, what, what is the commonality here? And that's, that's what I look for when I'm trying to experience the energy of a new stone. Um, I, I might immediately put my experience into words, like all woo-woo people love to do when they hold a new rock. It's great, it's fun, um, but I'm, I'm more invested in what is the mechanism underneath that rather than what is the surface level experience because most crystal books are written from that surface level experience. Rose quartz is for love. Citrine will bring you money. Jade is all about peace. Like why? Why though? Why, why do we experience this? And also when you read like as many hundreds of crystal books as I've had, you notice that not everyone says the same thing about every rock. So why don't I have the exact same experience that Judy Hall or Robert Simmons or um, anyone else had? Well, 
the same therapeutic mechanism, the same spiritual um, pattern apply to different sense of baggage, different life experiences, different circumstances yields different results naturally. So we have to look at like, what is the common thread here? So I try to approach that from the very first time I hold a rock. You know, what are these sensations? And then I, I try to hold off on preconceived notions. I, I try to, I'm a human being, I fail. Um, but, but I try to until I get later on. I love to just hold a rock, map out my impressions. And then the next thing I do, I look up its geology if I don't already know it. Okay, what crystal system is it? How is it formed? What are its ingredients? What other weird things are happening here? What, what is that going to tell me? And then I try to see if maybe that parallels my subjective personal experience. Oh, well, duh, I felt this because it's got iron or, you know, I always have this sensation about tetragonal minerals that feels just like that. Um, and, and I look for those kinds of patterns. And that's, that's what I've done over these decades to get me to where I am today. Okay, so I actually kind of feel good about what you said. And when I say I kind of feel good, I feel really good because what you're almost saying is you are going to become the uh, the journaler, the journalist, the scientist of this rock. So you would get like a journal and maybe every single day, I don't know, not for a long time, five minutes, 10 minutes or so, you're going to sit with the rock and then you're going to hold it up to the light and then you're going to write down almost like, you know, today's date, today, the rock looked like this. It felt like this to be da 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 couple yeah. of lines. Then the next day, same thing, day two, the rock looked like this to me today. It felt like this. And then you do it for like 30 days. And of course, things are going to evolve. You'll notice more things. You will maybe drop certain impressions. But if you go over all 30 of those, let's say five sentence entries, you're going to see some sort of pattern. You're going to see a pattern. And then once you see that pattern, you're going to be like, ah, so this rock, and then you go look up the geology and you're like, oh, it's made out of these chemicals. So there's a very good chance that if I'm dealing with rocks with these molecular structures, mm -hmm. that this common thread that I see is associated, at least with me, with that. Mm -hmm. So if I pick up another rock that has a similar composition, um, then in some ways I kind of already know ahead of time, like, oh, I wouldn't be surprised if I saw this happening again or that exactly. happening. But if it doesn't happen, then you can be like, interesting. That wasn't what I expected. Okay, let's try it again. So once you do that for six months, a year, five years, 10 years, and in your case, like 18 years, 20 years, you're going to have, again, a huge set of personal data points to say, I already know that in my experience, when I interact with certain types of chemicals and certain types of rocks, I get this sort of thing. So, okay, let me ask you, cause I'm curious, when it comes to these sorts of quartz, how do you personally interact with it? Like, what does it bring out in you? Like, how does it help you? So, you know, just keyword here, clarity. I mean, it's not a big leap from looking at it to go, okay, this is, an optically clear object, even just symbolically, metaphorically, clarity is an easy one. But you know, again, let's let's talk about its order, its structure, its composition. These are these are things that, at least in the the sort of context of my practice, those are keywords I associate with not just the way it looks, but the things it's made of and how it forms. Um, quartz belongs to the trigonal crystal group, and you know the the sort of fundamental seed unit of that. If we're going to just 
hyper reduce it, I'm gonna I'm gonna oversimplify. You know, think of a triangle. So it is the most one of the most efficient structures, one of the most stable structures. It is something that tessellates. You can take any other geometric form, any regular, irregular polygon, and you can keep dividing it into triangles and triangles and triangles over and over again. Regular ones make um, more regular figures, but um, even irregular polygons can just become triangles. So we kind of see that as a, a seed unit for things being um, laid bare, clear, reductive, easy, simple. So um, those, those are things I tend to associate with the crystal structure of quartz. Um, if we look at its chemical compositions just being silicon dioxide, you know, um, uh, things that are rich in, in silica, silicon and oxygen together, um, have that sort of expansive quality to the consciousness that it allows us to take a step back. And that's sometimes what we need to achieve clarity. Because if we're like all up in stuff, we, we don't have the vantage point we need. Um, if we look at the, the actual optical properties of quartz, it is this incredible optical tool. And it does all sorts of wonderful and weird things with light. It polarizes light. As light travels through it, um, in, in this direction through the what we call the C axis or the central axis of the stone, um, light begins to, the little particles or packets of light energy photons line up. So their electromagnetism, they have sort of, again, being reductive, they have like a north-south pole and an east-west pole. So one of those is the electric pole and the other one is the magnetic pole. As photons of light energy move through it in that direction, all those little north-south poles line up to face the same direction. Quartz does something weird though. Lots of things polarize light. Quartz introduces an optical rotation. It actually begins to turn light in, in a helix as it moves through it. This is something we can't really perceive with the light, our, our naked eyes because we can't watch the movement of individual photons. But you know that glow that Bob has? It's different than the glow of a piece of quartz. Just, just the way it looks kind of luminous inside. Mm -hmm. That's how I know it's not just a piece of glass. And that's that's a product of its optical properties, which are many and varied. It's by refringent. There's all sorts of other fun things with light. Um, but yeah, totally different. So, you, you know, I think when I'm working with a piece of clear quartz, it's helping me get really clear. What am I working on? What do I want to create? Where is my focus? I'm not expecting the crystal to fix all those things for me. I, I'm, I'm hoping, my expectation is that we can partner on this. If I view things animistically, there is a consciousness, some sort of indwelling force in there. I'm not mandating that it do anything. I'm extending an invitation like, hey, this is the goal I've got for today. Are you down with that? Um, and, and we might use very kind of mechanical sounding language like programming, charging, um, whatever to describe this process, but it's, it's really a matter of partnership, of co-creation, of intentional relationship. And so part of my job as the you know, equal co-creator here is to make sure I'm showing up doing my work. The rock's job is, as Kathleen said, not to do all the heavy lifting. So I'm gonna respect the rock by at least, if I can't get my shit together, owning up to the fact that I don't have it together and recognizing it's not the crystal's problem to fix that. But where, where can we meet? Somewhere in the middle. So in the case of like, I'm having a total anxiety freak out, um, they happen. They're, they are few and far between compared to my, we'll say previous life in this life. Um, if I grab that piece of rhodonite or I put the necklace on or whatever, I start to feel the settling effects of it in my energy field. It's a, it's a very tangible thing. Mm -hmm. 
but I don't expect it to take my anxiety away. I feel like I am better capable of addressing the situation. The situation does not fix itself. Like if you were to eat certain foods, you know, like you're feeling a little bit like you need a, an energy boost. So you drink some caffeine. Yeah. It, it's like an enhancer, but obviously the caffeine isn't going to get your paper done. It isn't going to, yeah, but it's going to help. It's going to help. Um, and when you were talking about, uh, talking more about this food analogy, so like, let's say that there's certain sorts of crystals and stones that may be like a uh, serrano pepper, you know, like, everyone can eat like a, a spicy pepper that has like that really high, like whatever it's called, that the, the hotness scale, even though they'll all report that it's spicy, not everybody's going to be, because some people like me, I have a high tolerance for spicy stuff. Yeah. So I'll, I'll eat it and be like, it's spicy, but I like it. I can handle it. And some people will be like, I can tell it's spicy, but it doesn't bother me. Some people, they, they will eat it and they will like break out in hives. They will like be super like this is so this is the spiciest thing that I've ever had in my life right there's a common theme it's a spicy food it's a spicy vegetable so that's what is consistent with all of the the peppers so right. maybe with the crystals that's what's consistent about all the crystals so in your working with students what has been the consistent theme with this bob-like creature? You know, a lot of people when working with quartz kind of generally um, will talk about this sort of amplifying effect, whether that's spellcraft manifestation, um, just amplifying what's happening in the subconscious mind so you can see it better. And, um, and you know, a lot of crystal books also, you know, maybe, maybe that was a seed that was planted first since I did a lot of reading first, um, but I started out just collecting rocks and having weird impressions of them. So um, you know, all that notwithstanding, amplification is one of the things people just talk about. You know, crystals, they, they oscillate, they vibrate, they're like antennas, they send our signals out into the world, they boost our signal. And, um, you know, here's, here's kind of an interesting approach to that. I don't believe that's the mission of quartz. I don't, I don't believe that that is the purpose of quartz, even though a lot of people believe it is, have the experience that addresses that, or you'll read about it in literature. I think that's a byproduct. I don't think that's what Quartz is here to do. I just think that's something that tends to happen if Quartz does its job. And Quartz's job, if we're going to give it a job class description, according to you know, my, my context, my work, the parameters of the stuff I've done, is coherence. So let's talk about Why how coherence. Coherence. So it's it all comes down to order again. So um, Let's talk about how amplification is a subset of coherency. So if, if uh, an ordered system, you know, all of its little bits are moving on that subatomic level, even on the atomic level, all the little bits are moving, um, these systems that vibrate generate electromagnetic fields. More ordered fields, again, have the ability to entrain us, right? So um, if we become a little bit more ordered, then we benefit from all the, the sort of fringe things that go along with that. And amplification is uh, an end result, but it's not the purpose. So here's, here's a good analogy. I'm a music guy, so you know I studied music. I like to use sound, but I love your food analogy. I will quote you on that. I will use it. You will get full credit. <laughs> I, I love it. Um, so let's say you walk up to a room. You haven't opened the door yet. It's full of people. 
it's pre-pandemic or post-pandemic, whatever you like. And um, you hear a dull roar, but you can't make anything out. You walk into the room, you have to get up close to this group or that group or this person or that speaker to really know what the message is. This is an incoherent state. Um, none of the noise travels very far because none of it has the order and the integrity to generate a, a loud enough volume, a high enough amplitude to cut through the white noise of the world. If you close that door, take a few steps away down the hallway, it's, there's like nothing. You might hear a little bit of white noise, but there's, there's no signal coming through. So now imagine at the drop of a hat, everyone in the room begins to sing or recite or whatever without raising their voices. No one is actually talking any louder. They're just all in harmony. They're all synchronized. You could hear that message from the other end of the hallway because it is highly ordered. It cuts through the white noise of the world. Um, so is the crystal amplifying us? No. But by being more coherent, more harmonious, our signal naturally has a higher amplitude. It, it cuts through the white noise of the stuff that's out there. So I think that's, that's the difference between like surface level effect and mechanism driving it. So, um, you know, people have this experience that, you know, courts and other things um, amplify their practice, but really it coheres their practice and a coherent message will travel farther. So that's, that's you know, side effect versus the mechanism. And I can definitely see, even if I were somebody who was an avowed non-magic, non-mystical person, mm -hmm. if I have any sort of affinity for psychology, mm -hmm. come on now. Like in psychology, one of the things that we know and we've learned, symbols are important. Symbols yeah. are important. So when you're with a symbol that does that, it's clear. It put light in it and it definitely seems to amplify that light and it focuses that light it doesn't just disperse it it focuses it yeah. um, obviously even if somebody was not into magic not an animus but just into psychology the symbolic nature of that makes a lot of sense a lot of sense totally and, and like i said earlier i can't i can't remove that level that component of it from the work because we're human beings. We are subject to psychology. We are subject to the placebo effect. We are subject to our own bullshit. We really are. But it works. At the end of the day, if we are committed to the practice, if we're really invested in the symbol, it works. Most of the time, at least. O often enough that the law of averages is, is telling us something. I'm especially... Um, impressed with the fact that you've been doing this for a very long time and that you've been teaching people. So you've also been able to see how other people interact with it. You've definitely seen the properties over many years of the stones. So it's not just like a one-off thing that you've noticed about the certain properties that stones have. And maybe from that, you've been able to either corroborate or to reject what some of these books, these hundreds of books that you've read they've said about the stones. Would you say that the average, and I know that you've read a lot of these books, but would you say the average crystal book, are they like 50% bullshit, 70%, 80% more? So I think it really boils down to, um, even, even if we're not gonna call it bullshit, because a lot of these books are written by people that I've grown to know and love over the years, um, and, and they believe their stuff. <laughs> um, there is certainly a tier of books that is written by people who observe results, record results, report results. 
And those are some of my favorite books out there. There are other people who take a more journalistic approach and they, they learn everything and then do that sort of meta-analysis that I also love to do and, and report that. And then there are other people who have their subjective personal experience. It happened, the crystal told them this was what they had. And so they print that. I can't say that's bullshit. I can't say that's not true because it's unverified personal gnosis. But more and more, we're seeing today a case of this game of telephone where someone had that unverified personal gnosis and then someone else, we'll say borrowed it in their own book and then it got borrowed again and that it ended up in a meme and then that meme got copied into a blog and then someone read that blog and went to a crystal store and told someone and then the person they told makes a TikTok video about what it is. And um, you know, somewhere in there was someone's genuine experience, maybe even something rooted in medieval literature that someone read and was comparing their experience to. Like th there could be something really genuine at the start of this, but it takes this really circuitous path and it ends up in a place that no longer resembles what that was. Um, I remember one time, uh, not all that long ago, um, I got an email from a reader who, who read Crystal Basics and they were like, kind of upset that when I talked about kyanite, which is usually blue, um, here's, a, here's a piece, um, it's aluminum silicate, um, really a fun rock. It's a nesosilicate, which makes it really heavy and uh, we use them in our spark plugs. I mean, it's, it's a great rock to have. Um, but in my book, I, I didn't explicitly state that it was for the throat chakra. He's like, was that a mistake or did, did, did you mean that? I mean, like there are 200 rocks in there. I, things are gonna slip through the cracks, right? And so I thought, you know, I honestly, can't think of the point in the literature where this became assigned to the third chakra. I can think of the first time metaphysical people paid attention to it at all in like the 80s, early 90s, and there's no mention of that. So what happened? And so I went through the literature in reverse, like reasonably, what is the most recent thing someone has said about it? Where did that come from? And um, I'm definitely not accusing anyone of plagiarism because other people have already accused them of it, but there's a lot of it in the world, but the crystal community in particular. So just kind of going back by back, matching language by language, I found the point at which someone had an original thought and said, this was a stone that was really good for the throat chakra. And then I could see the very next book to be published that, that had any impact in the market used almost the exact same language to describe this stone. And coincidence, I think there's a lot of trust that the sources we've read have done their work mm -hmm. and I mean, the biggest crystal book that's out there, which is out of print, it has over 1,400 stones in it. 1,400, 1,400, more than that. Um, it's like as, as, as big as the Oxford English Dictionary, maybe bigger. It's printed on heavy, glossy pictures, uh, paper so there can be pictures everywhere. Like it's, it's a big book. Um, do we really think the author sat down all in one sitting and said, what was my genuine personal experience with every one of these rocks or did she you know collate data she read other places or that she heard through nice. grapevine i mean we all do it we all kind of filter stuff right it's going to happen so um i'm definitely not going to say um i'm, I'm going to be kind to my my colleagues in this field um and definitely not accuse anyone of outright bullshit but i think i think readers have to be discerning it's like making a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. Eventually the integrity of it is so decayed that you, you might get an impression of the original image, but you don't have all the detail. 
And that's where we're at as a community when it comes to crystals. There's so much bullshit today because it's not substantiated on anything that was originally there. So there is a lot of bullshit, absolutely. But I would say that a lot of these books are founded on something that was a genuine and sincere experience. Not all the time, but, but often. But it's the difference between recording your unverified personal gnosis and billing it as truth and recognizing that like that was your personal experience. Like one of my mentors, her, her job in life outside of crystals was working with people who were what she called critically ill. So they might be terminal, it might be chronic, it, it might kill them, it might not. But th these were like critical situations. And then she began to observe how people responded to crystals. She, she watched the human psychological relationship that they had with stones and watched those patterns. What kinds of people and what kinds of situation are drawn to which crystals? And eventually she had a big enough data set and she wrote about it. And I mean, I trust everything she wrote because she saw it in the field. But then someone else can read that, not understand it, report on it badly. So I was just, I mentioned I was just rereading Hildegard von Bing and her ideas are very different than ours. She describes the formation of them as being akin to like fish scales. Like there's just so many weird analogies she makes that obviously it was, it was the best she had for her time, but e even though she worked in the sort of scientific and medical field for her day, that, that didn't have the same parameters that our science and medicine do today. And, you know, a thousand years from now, what are people going to be saying about the science and medicine of today? It's going to change. So like, see the context. That's really important. Just see the context. When I say something is full of bullshit, right? That's exactly what I mean. It's UPGs, unverified personal gnosis, being written as if they're universal or close mm -hmm. to being universal. And what you bring up is very important. A UPG may very well be extremely meaningful to a person, to a singular person, maybe even like a small group of people. It's sort of like if you're eating a spicy pepper, there is going to be at least one person, a group of people who are going to feel very close to nothing when they eat that pepper and to totally discount it and say, oh, no, 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 that's fake. No, it's not fake. There are some people who have a very, very, very high tolerance to spicy things. However, if you were to tell people, oh, no, you can eat it because like seriously, like I read somewhere that these peppers, like they don't cause any discomfort. Well, then let's say 80%, 90% of the population, they're going to eat that pepper and they're going to burn their mouth. Yeah. So it's kind of like that. It's not to discount the people who don't have that same sort of like, oh, this is spicy, but it's also saying that that's their maybe minority opinion. But as for the majority, it may not apply. Definitely. I think that is a really good analogy. The The way my, my sort of philosophical orientation to the world wraps around it is, I do believe there is absolute truth. But so long as I inhabit this body in this plane, I experience everything relative to me. So I can only perceive relative truth. As long as I know that, then I'm in good shape. There's my bullshit meter right there. Like that's, that's a predetermined part of it. Right. I understand everything is relative. There is an absolute, but we have to put it into language, which is relative. We have to put it into, you know, social norms and constructs, which is relative. I have to like, uh, you know, see how that grates against my identity. And that's relative. I wish period. I had a bell or something because I wanted to ring it because I think you just hit upon that 
perfect answer for when I was asking, like, how do you know, like, what you're experiencing is bullshit or not? How do we develop that bullshit meter? And you just said it. It is literally just recognizing, simply recognizing that everything is relative to you. You can go through life and as long as you're constantly reminding yourself, that's what it's like to me. It doesn't mean it applies to everybody else. It just applies to me. That literally is the bullshit meter. That yeah. literally is it. Like you don't have to be super fancy about it. You can just literally have a bullshit meter simply by saying, hmm, works for me, great. But it may not work for everybody. That's great too, because it's all relative to me. And when we say bullshit and being discerning and stuff, what it really is is simply being self-aware. That's what the bullshit meter is, self-awareness. And if you have that self-awareness, naturally you're gonna be like, hmm, I possibly can't know everything. Maybe I should read a book. Maybe I should ask other people how they feel about it. Then everything is changed in perspective because you no longer are threatened by the idea that, oh my God, I might be wrong. Because there is no sense of like, oh my God, you're wrong or yay, I'm right. It's more like, it's right for me, but it may be wrong for you. And that's okay. That's exactly how life is built. And so what you just answered, I think, is the ultimate bullshit meter, self-awareness. Ooh, I like that. I really like that. So, okay. So Bob, <laughs> so, so Bob like, um, is very much enjoying like everything that you're saying. And I mean, just hold, I've been holding on to Bob. I've been massaging Bob. I've been, you know, having some sort of physical connection with Bob for most of the time that we've been talking. And Bob just felt comfortable in my hand. And maybe I'm just imagining things. Mm -hmm. However, I think there is something relative to me as a skeptic, as somebody who doesn't believe in this sort of stuff. There is something to, to say that a skeptic felt like a rock felt comfortable, you know? That doesn't mean that it applies to everybody. Somebody else may be in the same position, hold the rock and be like, I felt nothing. And so it's no longer just like a paperweight. It's right. no longer just this glass water bottle. This is Bob, this, this is personality. This is something that adds a little bit of oomph to my life. So even if I'm not somebody who's just like, yeah, crystals definitely have a personality. There's something about holding Bob and feeling the comfort emanating from Bob, that's a cool experience. That's a very cool experience. And it could be a lot of different reasons why I feel it's cool, but it's significant enough so that I noticed it. And in that sense, it was an experience that I would enjoy having again. And from what you've told me about sort of um, well-known properties of these quartz, the coherence, maybe, the reason why I felt comfortable is that what you were saying was becoming coherent to me and this quartz was amplifying as a subset of the coherence, the coherence that I was feeling from you turning into coherence into me. Wow. And that's why it felt comfortable. Coherence feels comfortable because there is no friction, right? Everything is aligned. So no wonder it would feel comfortable. No wonder it would feel like, okay, everything is aligned. Everything is coherent. Ah, and now this final thing, it feels like it matches everything else comfortable. 
comfortable. So, Bob, you may be the bullshit meter as well. <laughs> so if it's not coherent, then maybe it won't feel as comfortable. Maybe I'll be like going like this with Bob, like, oh, something doesn't feel right. But I was holding Bob just comfortably in my hand while I was talking to you. Let's say a young witch watches this and is like, all right, I would love to work with crystals. I'm going to get Nicholas's book, Crystal Basics, which you can see like behind Nicholas right there. By the way, um, can you show us some of the pages? Like, uh, yeah. Um, <clears throat> so the A to Z section is like this. You've got full color throughout. Um, and it's broken down by physical, psychological, spiritual associations of the stones. You get a little blurb at the top with the mineral science because I'm that guy. Um, you get a quick reference at the back. So broken down by the same physical, psychological, spiritual properties. If you need a stone for abundance, they're just all listed for easy, easy reference. But the first half, um, let's, let's find some science in here. Like the opening of this chapter starts with like, what is energy? What is a sine wave? What is frequency, amplitude, wavelength? Why does it matter more importantly? Um, you know, kind of stepping all that down and then going through like the crystal axes and chemical composition and formation process and how we can like using the sort of language that I use to describe how all those things matter. Hypothetically, let's say you get a rock that is not among these 200. Wikipedia will tell you, uh, mineral database, mindat.org will tell you what it's made out of what its structure is like and what the likely process was that brought it to being. There can be some variation in that last one. You can have a garnet that's made by igneous activity or by metamorphic. They feel different. Um, they look different too if you're you know geologically inclined. But if you're not, don't don't worry about that level just yet. Um, and you can you can like pick it apart. You can figure out, oh well this has magnesium, aluminum, silicon and oxygen. It has a cubic crystal structure. It is formed by igneous activity. And there's like a, think of it as like the doctrine of signatures, but for geology, you know, there's, there's a pattern here. There's a symbolic language. I'm definitely saying that this is, we, we can approach it just as a symbol or a metaphor. I think there's more to it. My experience corroborates that, but I will let everyone decide that for themselves. So yeah, that's, that's the book. It's got like grids and layouts and other fun things you can do too. So they're, they're, they're a thing. Um, they've been a, been a thing for a while. Um, my, my approach is like, I, I went through my phase when I believed my own bullshit. Um, larger than life was just the right size. I still think genuine life, larger than life is great, but you're not going to catch me making too many grids that take up a whole room. Like I've done that. It was great. I've had like massive meditation experiences um, with, you know, 30, 40 people huddled around a, a grid that probably had like five or 600 rocks in it. That's great. But you know what? I am not going to do that in my home because then I have to clean it up. So like I'm a less is more kind of guy. So um, yeah, think of to be like really woo woo. People talk about crystal grids with like the language of sacred geometry. And I think that geometry matters because forms can be pleasing or not pleasing to us. There is a symbolic language that can be attributed to form and angle and number. If that means something to you, use it. And I use those sorts of things very psychologically to build grids. Like what does the meaning of this number do for me? Uh, and then, then the other thing we can look at from the electromagnetism part of things is the law of synergy. 
this is not merely cumulative. It's not just adding the energy of this crystal plus this crystal plus this crystal becomes exponential, it becomes multiplicative. So a few rocks really intentionally arranged. Intention is not everything, but it's important. You know, it's it's the steering wheel. We we need we need three things for magic or whatever our practice is to work really well. We've we've got to have the actual vehicle. Like what is the tool you're using? It's got to have fuel. So that's like your focus, your emotions, your follow-through, the oomph you're putting into it. And then you also need the steering wheel, which is intention. But like you subtract any one of those things and you got nothing. So people who say intention is everything, I would like you to drive across country holding a steering wheel. Nothing else, no car, just a steering wheel. Like you're not gonna get that, right? So um, for me, crystal grids, like that's a, an important bit of it. But certainly I, I trust my experience corroborates this, that um, the law of synergy is gonna do something, that that symbolic attribution of of form, angle, and number when it comes to the geometry of it, that's gonna mean something to me. I like to think it means something to the universe as well. I don't know that absolutely, but I like to think the way geometry matters to, you know, literally everything with substance <laughs> when we look at it, um, that's gotta do something. So yeah, grids, grids are super fun. I don't tend to make a whole bunch these days because I'm too darn busy, if I'm being honest. Uh, but like when I'm, when I get back to teaching often, I love to do like, I end a workshop by building a grid, everyone contributes rocks, we all kind of make it together. And then we have a meditative experience with it. There'll be some sort of journey work, some something we're accomplishing, hopefully, even if the, if the goal to accomplish is to be present and experience, like that, that's, a, that's an intention too, right? If I can encourage people to one, think critically, use that bullshit meter, this is relative to me, uh, but also in the opposite, like where is this common to others? And we can flip that script as well. Okay, like let's take Nicholas out of it. What else is happening here? And that's what I did with my literature analysis. That's what I do with my students. That's what I do with you know all sorts of stuff these days. Um, and then like surrender to that. Like we have to be willing. And that's not crystals. That's life. I mean, you you don't meet the love of your life if you're not willing to try. You you don't have a successful. Um, ritual if if you're not willing to learn all the bits and maybe get them wrong and probably laugh a lot in the process um, you're definitely not going to grow in working with stones whatever that practice looks like for you if you're also not willing to kind of surrender to the process like I just have to give myself over to it at some point what are your top three or four crystal wrecks that are the most accessible and that you feel are great for young beginner witches and beginners and crystals? Sure. So um, I'm probably going to talk about families because one that lets me cheat by mentioning more stones, but two, it also shows the relationship and gives you options. So quartz, not just clear quartz like Bob, but you could work with something like amethyst, citrine, smoky quartz, rose quartz. Any form of crystalline quartz is going to, at some level or another, because of their shared physical, chemical, optical, structural properties, is, is going to have a baseline that is similar. So, you know, that is great. Uh, you can get quartz that is very expensive. You can get quartz that is very cheap. So, you know, use what you're drawn to as well as what fits the budget. Um, I think another important thing to have in, in your toolbox early on are grounding stones. So again, they all work in slightly different ways. Their, their makeup and structure and formation process yields a different therapeutic mechanism, a different spiritual pattern 
um, but the end result might be kind of comparable. So we'll call them grounding sounds. It might be black tourmaline, it might be petrified wood or bronzite or hematite or even good old smoky quartz. I mean, there's a two for one, right? You get the expansive nature of quartz and it's a grounding stone. Um, I think another one that is just really accessible here, I'll commit to a single mineral, fluorite. Fluorite is great. Um, you could do nothing but collect fluorites, be a fine mineral collector and never ever run out of fluorites to collect. The variation in morphology, color, the patterns, uh, the associated minerals that'll be with it, like fluorite is never boring and it's gorgeous. I mean, it's easy to find inexpensive polished pieces, tumbled pieces and rough. Um, if you wanna splurge on a museum quality fluorite and that's a safe thing for you to do, then like go for it. Minerals tend to appreciate and value over time as well. So like, you know, the, the new art collecting is mineral collecting with like the super elite. So we're seeing a lot of people investing in, in rocks and minerals that way, but fluorite's a great one. I love it. It brings order. It brings, um, there's this sort of like rhythmic regularity to it. I mean, that's true of all crystals, but it, it's a cubic crystal. So it's crystal system is isometric, equal measure. All the axes are the same. All the angles are the same, at least on an internal molecular kind of way. Um, and that regularity, that stability, um, th there's like a reassurance in that for me, energetically speaking. Wait, how um, is that different from Bob's structure? So um, Bob is trigonal. Think of like its, its seed as being triangular in nature versus cubic. And lots of fluorites, when you actually look at them, are perfect cubes or cubes stacked together. And so by, by virtue of its axes, a cubic mineral cannot distort light. So um, because, you know, th there's, there's no distorted angle for light to bend through. So cubic minerals tend to present things as they are. So like you want a stone for honesty, integrity, discipline, fluorite's your, your ally there. Okay, okay. That makes sense. This kind of reminds me of, you know, when you're doing tarot or you're doing mm -hmm. numerology, the number three. Yeah. And number four, they have a different vibe. And number fours, they're known for their stability, right? Because it's four corners. It's like the four legs of a chair versus a stool. It's a slightly different vibe. Is there a fourth um, family or you think those three families are plenty enough? Um, well, you know, let's, let's address the elephant in the room. One of them, at least. One of the things that's like always going to be popular, but especially on TikTok, selenite. Um, people love it. So like we've got, we've got our mediating force in the quartz family. It can be beginner friendly and grow with us. It can be stabilizing, it can be expansive. Then we've got our downers with our grounding stones. Fluorite in some ways is very grounding, but more at the like intellectual level than the rest. Uh, so let's, let's put an upper in there. So I think selenite because of the accessibility of it, the relative price of it is, is a great one. Um, but one, one PSA for baby witches out there, beginning crystal healers, just people who are interested, like, please, for the love of God, if, if, if you are cleansing crystals and practicing good spiritual hygiene, cleanse your selenite too. Um, I, my, my take on this is that the, the nature of crystals, the nature of crystallinity and the tiny little defects allows them to um, store things. That's why we use silicon crystals in computer. They literally store things. Um, so if we're just using one crystal, to cleanse another, what we're really doing is transferring the energy, the information stored in this one to this one. It's like using a dirty sponge to wash your dishes. So when you're done, what do you do with the sponge? You clean it. So 
why don't you skip the middleman and like just cleanse crystals, all of them. Um, so, but selenite is great. Um, it, it is distantly kind of related to other salts, not salt that we consume, but they're all kind of like chemically speaking salts, uh, acid and a base pair together and precipitate something out. Um, it's formed by aqueous activity. It's usually sort of sedimentary. These are stones um, the sedimentary rocks and, and secondary minerals, we call them, are subject to their environment. They're a product of the interaction of their environment. So they tend to work on things that are environmental, that are superficial, that are ambient, the things around us, rather than just the interior stuff. Although, I mean, you touch one, you touch the other. So having a stone formed in that way can often give us insight to what's going on, how we're responding to our environment. I think that's why people associate it with things like cleansing and clearing, because um, if we have an awareness of what's going on in our environments, then we can do something about it. Is that a thing? Like, like how do you do it? Yeah, um, there are different schools of thought. I mean, how do you cleanse anything in witchcraft? Uh, ask 10 witches, you'll get 30 different answers, right? So um, it's the same with crystals. My favorite method and uses the breath. Um, you might burn your favorite cleansing herb. You might um, have fancy singing bowls and chimes. But if you're going to use sound, like why not clap? I mean, that's free. Um, use the voice. You got that. Um, I love using the breath because I always have it. And if I don't, my problem is not a crystal. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, there, there are so many different ways. Uh, you could use sun or salt or water, but not every crystal responds the same way. You're going to bleach some of your stones in the sun. You're going to damage some in water and salt. So uh, find a method that's safe for everything. Sound is safe. Smoke is safe breath is safe. I mean, if something's too delicate to like huff on, then you're not using it in your practice. You're not carrying it with you. It is not a piece of jewelry. So you don't have to worry about that. If something is really too delicate to breathe on or, or like clap at, it's probably behind glass with a mineral collector. So we've cleansed the crystal. So let's say that this witch uh, they bought your book, they bought a journal so that they can write down their five sentences every day about observing the crystals. They bought a crystal from each of the families that you're talking about. They bought a quartz, they bought a grounding stone, uh, they bought a fluorite, they bought a selenite. They have all that. They've cleansed it by doing, which is what I do when I work with hecatates, lots of clapping, yeah. clapping, um, using the breath. And then people are going to be like, oh, now I need to charge the crystal. What does that mean? And how do they do that? I think when most people say charging, the action they're taking is actually cleansing. A crystal is not a battery. It, we don't have to plug it in because we used it. Um, but by virtue of its perfect memory, I mean, its memory is much better than mine. I barely remember what I had for lunch um, or to eat lunch if I'm really in like my crazy hermit writer phase. Um, but crystals just just by nature of their their molecular stuff going on, the imperfections that are there, they're going to retain an imprint. So cleansing is the act of like wiping that slate clean. So when people are engaging in a lot of things they call charging, they're actually like really doing cleansing things. We're not charging crystals or selenite. We're we're cleansing them. We're not charging them under the full moon most of the time. We're we're using it symbolically to cleanse them. I I think. Um, the word charge has changed meaning over the years as we've become a, a different, more technologically oriented civilization. Like it used to be to charge something wasn't to fill it with energy, but to like give it a task. I have given you this charge to fulfill. And that's what we mean when we're charging an object ritually. We're not like imbuing it with energy because it's a battery that's going to run out. I mean, maybe that's how we psychologize it today, but 
to charge something was to give it directions. Here's the thing you're doing. So for me, that is synonymous with like the word that was popular in the 80s was programming and, and viewing an intention in the stone. But I view this as a co-creative act. I'm not mandating, you must do this. I'm extending the invitation. Hey, Bob, would you like to work on this with me? And maybe I'm not phrasing it that way, but that's, that's where my relationship with the stone is rooted in. You are writing a paper and just maybe the intention is, is that Bob is gonna be near you. And whenever you feel a certain way, you're gonna reach out and stroke Bob or something yeah. like that. So basically charging a crystal seems more like having that crystal become a daily part of your life. If you're doing it well, absolutely. And you know, here's, here's the magic that I've witnessed time and time again. You spend the time building relationship with your stone. You're cleansing it as often as you feel like you need to, maybe even a little bit more often. You're charging or programming it with your intention. And then you forget it. It doesn't make it into your pocket or it doesn't go into your purse or you leave the bracelet at home, but you still get the benefit. Why? Because like, again, you're programming yourself at the same time. You're charging yourself up with that. The, the stones, even if they're only working on that symbolic metaphorical level, they're a touchstone, a tangible reminder of the work you're doing. And if you're doing it right, the work starts in here, not, not in here. Um, I definitely believe in like this whole concept of quantum entanglement, like because I've built a relationship with a stone, of course I can leave it at home and it works non-locally. Um, in fact, uh, one of the most famous experiments that they ever tested, like non-local action, was with polarized photons. And what was the polarizing medium they used? A piece of quartz. Oh my God, I just thought of another analogy, which is, okay, maybe Bob, is like an actual person, right? And Bob is a very coherent influence as a person in my life. Let's say Bob is this incredible mentor type that comes into my life. And Bob's energy as a mentor, as a human being mentor, right? Like Bob is whoop, turned into Bob the mentor. Mm -hmm. Bob's influence doesn't stop when I leave the house, like, bye Bob, yes. you know? Bob's lessons stay with me, just like every other human being's lessons. They stay, they're influenced the way they make you feel. All that, it stays with you, even if you don't see them for months at a time. They may change your life and you may never see a person again. And that person still lives inside of you, both in a good way or a bad way. Yeah. And, and isn't that kind of the definition of magic, depending on who you ask and which piece of literature you're consulting, but influencing change to occur in conformity with the will? This was such a helpful talk. I mean, I'm, I'm just very, very much like impressed by the things that you told me, um, really into, you know, the knowledge that you have. Again, there's that book, Crystal Basics behind Nicholas, and you also teach classes. I do, I, I teach online exclusively these days. It's mm -hmm. a beautiful thing of the pandemic, you don't have to be local to me, um, so I'm, I, I'm not a super techie person. I live in the Stone Age in more ways than one, I think. So uh, my website hasn't been updated in a million years, but usually uh, Facebook, I host events, Eventbrite, and Eventbrite, I host events. I try to share across different social media platforms. So if you follow me somewhere, you'll see a reminder at some point, but I, I try to teach people practical things they can do that are not super complicated. So you can like just implement that influence in your life without it having to break the budget and require you to read like 400 books. Nicholas, thank you so much for this interview. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Chalon.
and Bob. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Witches and Wine audio experience. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting me on Patreon. You can choose between a few membership tiers. They're super affordable and flexible. Your membership helps me continue making videos, podcasts, articles, lots of different things about all the sweet witchy stuff. Links are in the show notes. Also, don't forget to go on iTunes and give this a five-star rating. Each five-star rating helps rank this podcast higher in searches so that as many witches can find and enjoy these episodes as well. Until next time, this is Chawan, signing off. <laughs>